0: Sherry and I are genuinely pleased to be worshiping with you this morning. One of the reasons for this is that we continue to hear encouraging reports of your ministry here in the Sycamore area, and that delights our hearts. Then to come to see many faces we've known and names we've forgotten, (laughs) but you're so patient. And then to see many new faces, that too is very encouraging. Another reason that uh, it's so good to be with you is the growing appreciation I have for your pastor, Pastor Jeff. Past couple years have been difficult for all of us, I know. I think perhaps more for pastors than for many others in some ways that I won't even take the time to explain to you this morning. This has been a difficult season for pastors, particularly young pastors. I find myself on a regular basis praying for young pastors, praying for Jeff by name, That God will grant him unusual wisdom and grace and patience during this season. A couple weeks ago, Jeff and I were having coffee together and he mentioned that he was going to be spending some time with you this fall talking about home, the biblical concept of home. And I said, Jeff, before I open the word to your congregation uh, on the 26th, may I just say a word about that theme because it's It's very special to my heart. And he said, do that. So I'm going to take just a minute, if I might, and share with you before I go to the text for this morning. Some years ago, when Sherry and I had just lost her mother, my father, and our son in a very short span of time, when we had finished up 22 years of ministry in Deerfield, and when we were moving from the home we'd lived in for those 22 years out to Elgin, uh, it was a time of of a sense of great loss and loneliness. And uh, I remember feeling like we were homeless, we were uprooted in so many different ways. And during those days as I prayed uh, for the Lord to heal that part of us that was broken and lost and grieving, there came to me from the Word of God this understanding that home is not really about a place. You know that, don't you? It's not about a building. It's about the people that God gives you to share these days here on earth with. I was reminded of that this morning as we came back and saw your faces And I thought to myself, this feels like home. These are the people that God gave us a season with. And we rejoice to have shared those days with you. And now to be back sharing this morning with you in worship. By the way, should my notes blow away, we'll consider that providential. If they blow to you, you're responsible to finish the message. All right? Okay, as long as we understand that. My text for this morning is uh, from Exodus chapter 32. I'm going to look at just a few verses with you. This is a powerful passage. In fact, it's one of the most dense teaching portions in all scripture. I'm about to do a six-part series in Exodus 32 at our home church. And um, I was asked by the pastor there, he said, well, I'm going to be on sabbatical. What are you going to be preaching on while I'm in sabbatical? I said, I'm going to be preaching on Exodus 32 he said yes but I'm gone six weeks I said yes I'm going to be preaching from Exodus 32 so we're going to spend some time there but this morning just one theme that is powerful as it comes to us from this passage and I think very apropos for this season in the life of the church reading then from Exodus chapter 32 beginning at verse 1 when the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain they gathered around Aaron and they said Come, make us gods that will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Aaron answered them, Take off the golden earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing, and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, more literally a bull, fashioning it with a tool. And then they said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. Now go over to verses 17 and 18. And you may not see the connection immediately, but I think you will before we're done this morning. When Joshua heard the noise of the people shouting, he said to Moses, What is the sound of war in the camp? And Moses replied, It is the sound of victory. It is not the sound of victory. It is not the sound of defeat. It is the sound of singing that I hear. I think it would be more than presumptuous for me this morning to assume that you understand the context of these, these verses that I've just read to you. So I'm going to take a moment and remind you where they fit into the text. The people of God, Israel, had only recently been delivered from slavery in Egypt. God had delivered them. He'd protected them. He'd led them across the Red Sea and made, as they made their way to the foot of Mount Sinai. Along the way, He'd led them in defeating several tribes that had come against them. And here at Sinai, God met with His people. And He displayed His glory as they had never before seen it as a matter of fact most scholars believe that the display of God's glory here at Sinai among his people Israel was the greatest display the fullest display of the glory of God that will any man has ever seen until we stand before him one day and on heaven sure. in Exodus 19 16 through 19 we read on the morning of the third day there was thunder and lightning and a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast Everyone in the camp trembled. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace. And the whole mountain trembled violently. You see, what was the result of this in the hearts and the minds of the people? The text is very clear. It was great fear. In fact, we read in Hebrews 11 that Moses himself trembled on this occasion in the presence of God's glory. And the people stood at a distance. And they begged Moses. Do you remember this passage? They begged Moses. They said, now Moses, you can speak to us all you want. But please, please don't have God talk to us anymore. We can't stand it. (laughs) The voice of God was so powerful. His glory so great and incomprehensible that they asked Moses, please, no more. You speak to us on his behalf. Shortly thereafter, God called Moses come up the mountain and join him there for a very important moment. And for 40 days Moses communed with God there on Mount Sinai while all the people down in the valley below could see the glory of God burning brilliantly at the crest of the mountain. And during that time God was communicating to Moses the Ten Commandments, the very foundation of his covenant with the people of Israel. But as hard as it is to imagine, the people of God who had seen this incredible vision of God's glory quickly grew accustomed to God, accustomed to his glory. And they they grew weary of Moses' absence. And then it was that one of the most foolish and one of the most blasphemous acts recorded in, in all of biblical history, the people of God came to Moses' brother Aaron and they said, Make us gods that will lead us through the wilderness. What did they think Jehovah had been doing? Make us gods that will lead us through the wilderness. And Aaron, motivated by a desire to please the people, took the gold earrings from their ears, and he fashioned a calf, the text says, but really it was a a bull. That's the better translation. Much like like the bull that many of them had worshipped. During their days in Egypt. That was one of the major gods in Egypt. And so delighted were the children of Israel. That they threw themselves a party. More accurately they threw themselves as you are going to see in a moment. an, An orgy. To celebrate their new gods. And they said out loud. These are your gods Israel. Who brought you out of Egypt. Now these were the events that precipitated the noise coming from the camp of the Israelites on the occasion described in Exodus 32 verses 5 and 6. And they answered in in large part the first point that I would like to stress with you and that is the occasion the occasion for the noise coming from the encampment of God's people. By the way, I'm not sure I even read those key verses. I want to read them for you right now. Verses 5 and 6. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf, and he announced, Tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. And after that, they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. And that's the noise we're talking about that was coming out of the camp. And this is the occasion for that noise. Let me say just a word more about the occasion if I might. Bernard Ram in his book God's Way Out writes these words. He says, chapter 32 of Exodus tells us a terrible incongruity. Like a murder in a cathedral after a high mass, or a rape at a wedding feast, or goofy clowns at a funeral. Something occurs that is entirely out of place. In the midst of a high and holy revelation, in the midst of the manifestation of the glory of God, a terrible incident of idolatry occurred, accompanied by gross, immoral behavior. He goes on to say the psalmist speaks of it in Psalm 106, when he wrote these words, At Sinai, the Israelites made a calf and worshipped an idol cast with metal. They exchanged their glory, the glory of Jehovah God, for an image of a bull that eats grass. They forgot the God who had saved them. Who had done great things in the land of Egypt. Miracles in the land of Ham. And awesome deeds by the Red Sea. And then Ram concludes with these words. It's shocking. How could such depravity break out. In the midst of such holiness. How could gratitude for redemption. From the slavery of Egypt. So soon give way. To idolatrous worship. Now this wasn't done in hushed tones. I need to add. This was done at the top of their lungs. This was done for all to hear, in fact, way up on the top of the mountain. God heard the noise. He heard the words of his children as they celebrated their new gods. And he sent Moses scurrying back down the mountainside to quiet them. As unlikely, as inappropriate as it may sound, the noise coming from the encampment of God's people occurred in the very moment that God with his own finger was penciling out the Ten Commandments, his covenant of love for his people Israel. Now that brings us to consideration of a second thought, a second observation I'd like to make on the text, and it's this. I want to talk about the nature of the noise coming from the people of God. The nature of the noise coming from the people of God. The noise coming from God's people at the base of Sinai is variously described in several verses in our text. In verse 8, we're told it was the noise of eating and drinking. It was the noise of feasting, if you will. In verses 17 and 18, we're told it was the noise of shouting, singing, and dancing. In verse 25, we're told it was the noise, it was the sound of people running wild. It was the sound of people out of control. But if we've got to settle on just one word to describe the noise coming from the camp of the Israelites, it would have been the word translated in our English text as revelry. It's not a word we use a whole lot, is it? What is revelry? What kind of noise does revelry make? Not a common word today. The Hebrew word used in our text is the word shehach. Listen to what the scholars have to say about the meaning of this word. It refers to nakedness, illicit and immoral sexual behavior, drunken jesting, mocking of the holy, drunkenness as in orgies. It's no wonder that, that the holy scriptures sum up the noise being made by the children of Israel on this occasion as the noise of people, verse 25, running wild. The noise of people out of control. In modern day parlance, the noise coming from the camp of the Israelites was the noise of tens of thousands partying. It was campus town on Friday night. It was the sound of the world on New Year's Eve. It was the sound of, quote, out of control, the sound of off the hook. It was the sound of God's children. That's the interesting thing. This is not the world we're talking about. It was the sound of of the church, the people of God. Had they lived in our day, such sounds would have been cause for us to turn down the volume or pull the plug or invite them to go into another room or put the children to bed or call the network and ask them what in the world they thought they were doing by putting that on the air. But all those efforts would have been to no avail since they, Israel, the people of God, and not their pagan neighbors, were the ones making these profane noises. You know, the Apostle Paul faced a very similar dilemma in the first century church. Writing to the church in Corinth, he condemns them for revelry going on in that city and in the church in that city. He condemns them for incest, prostitution, homosexual behavior, drunkenness, theft, swindlers, slanderers, and then he proceeds to make this incredibly unexpected application in chapter 5 verse 11 of that book. He says, but now I'm writing to you, the church. And he says in verse 1 of that same chapter, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you in the church of a kind that even pagans don't tolerate. (sighs) Would to God that was the last time such noise was ever heard coming from the people of God, ever coming from the church. But church history assures us it was not the last time. And worse yet, the evening news reminds us all too regularly that those kinds of noises are sometimes coming forth from certain congregations, certain churches, even in the church today, in the year 2021. It would appear that even today, the terms running wild and out of control are not terribly off-target descriptions, for much going on in many churches. Now before we address the sad situation any further, I want to go back to our text and pick up a third point, a third observation. By the way, incidentally, when you, when you preach a message like this, and it's kind of a hard text, I'm always reminded of a service I was in several years ago, and a young pastor was dealing with a particularly difficult text, and he got to about this point, and he said... Wow, this next point's really tough. Let's all take a coffee break. And they got up and went out and had coffee and came back 15 minutes later. After I heard what he had to say, I wished he'd called for a second coffee break. But at any rate, uh, we don't have a coffee break this morning, but hang with me, will you? There's hope. There's hope in this message. I want to talk with you now about the hearers and what they heard. Who were the people that heard the noise coming, the revelry coming from the camp, from the church, from the people of God? Well, the first to hear the noise coming from the congregation at the base of Sinai was God himself. And we read about that in verse 6 of our text. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go down at once because your people, whom you brought up out of Egypt, have become corrupt. They have made themselves an idol. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed it and said, Note, this is what God heard them saying. This is what God heard. He heard them saying, These are your gods, Israel who brought you up out of Egypt. Not Jehovah God, not the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Moses, but the image of a cow covered with gold, a lifeless, impotent piece of artwork fashioned by a man just like themselves. And suddenly the scripture writer's choice of words in verse 6 makes perfect sense. You recall the word used under inspiration to describe the noise rising from God's people? That word revelry? We said it was used in scripture of drunkenness and and sexual indecencies and running wild. But here's what I didn't tell you about that word earlier. Its root meaning is to mock. To mock. And that's what God heard as the noise from his people in the valley reached his ears. He heard his own people mocking him. He heard them ascribing his glory to a God who was no God at all. A God with the face of a cow. A God that had it been real, uh, could have eaten grass, but since it was just a block of wood or whatever it was, couldn't eat anything, couldn't do anything. A totally impotent God. No wonder the text says in verse 10, and his anger burned against them. The second person in our text to hear the noise coming from the Israelite camps was Joshua. Joshua. Some of you will recall that on the way up the mountain, Moses had taken Joshua with him partway, and then Joshua had stayed there while Moses went on. And now as Moses descends the mountain at God's command to quell the noise down in the valley, he's rejoined by Joshua. And in verse 17 we read, When Joshua heard the noise of the people shouting, he said to Moses, There's the sound of war in the camp. Clearly Joshua was confused. He didn't know what to compare it with. He'd never heard anything like this from the the courts and, and from the people of Israel. But it must have been, he thought, it must have been something like a war that would have caused this kind of clamor in the courts of God. Joshua's confusion is very quickly addressed by Moses in verse 18. He says, no, it's not the sound of victory and it is not the sound of defeat. All too soon Joshua and Moses would be in the camp and they would see what it was that was causing this noise. But for the moment, the noise coming from the congregation of God's elect only produced in them a sense of confusion. They didn't know what to make of it. Now there's a lot to be said about that, but but we'll come to that a little bit later. For now I simply want you to note that the noise coming from the congregation at Sinai left Joshua confused as to its source and its meaning. The third person in our text to hear the noise from the Israelite camp was Moses himself. Verse 18, Moses replied to Joshua's confusion and he says, It's not the sound of victory. It's not the sound of defeat. It's the sound of singing. It is the sound of bar songs, of drinking songs that we hear. Now, on other occasions, this same word might have been used in reference to God's people singing songs of praise antiphonal choruses, singing and then others singing back, praise the Lord, hallelujah, praise the Lord, hallelujah, somewhat as we did earlier this morning. It might have been similar to the singing of songs of deliverance like that in Exodus 15, the song of Moses and Miriam, sung by the entire congregation on that occasion when they had come through the Red Sea. But on this occasion, it takes on a very different meaning. And having already been warned by God about what he's about to encounter when he gets into the camp, Moses' reference to singing can only anticipate partying, drinking songs, the music of a people who are running wild. What Moses hears and rightly understands is the people of God, if you will, the church out of control, the people of God partying. Now there's still one more group of hearers alluded to in our text. Israel's enemies. Verse 25 of the same chapter says this. Aaron had let the people of God get out of control. And so he had let them become a laughing stock to their enemies. Who were these enemies? They were the Goyim. They were the Gentiles. They were the peoples. They were the nations. They were the tribes that surrounded Israel. The surrounding tribes and nations. Sometimes these people are defined in scripture as the object of Israel's mission. They were to make the glory of God known to these people. They were to spread that word, even as you and I are called upon to spread the word of Jesus Christ and his glory in our own age. On other occasions, the people referred to as the peoples, the goyim, are the enemy of God's people. And in like fashion today, those outside the church are sometimes referred to as the object of the church's mission. We're to reach them with light, the message of glory and gospel and hope. But on other occasions, the goyim, the people outside of the people of God, outside of the church, are referred to as the enemies of God and his people. But what's significant for our study today is that they too, this group of people out here, not the church, not Israel, but these people out here around us, in our neighborhood, in our community, in our nation, in our world, they were the ones who heard the noise coming from the camp of God's people, and what they heard made them laugh. What they heard made them think of the Israelites, the people of God, as a laughingstock. There was a derisive whisper that went up when they mentioned the name of their God, and these people... No doubt they had their spies in their days, just as we do today. They probably had their equivalent of paparazzi. And they had an issue. They had something to report. There were 600,000 people on their borders. Oh, imagine that. We've only got 30,000 or so a day coming into our country. They had 600,000 on their borders. And they were more concerned than we we're concerned about. They knew that the 600,000 was a movement. And they were moving forward in the name of this Jehovah God. And they had defeated several of the tribes around them already. And they had to be full of fear and wonder what was going on. And then, And then the word came back to them. That these folks were sitting in the middle of the desert throwing a party for themselves. And it became the occasion for a good laugh. And many a story told around the fire or the table. Have you heard, they'd say. And then they'd proceed to recite all the foul tales they'd heard about these holier-than-thou Israelites. I'd say, this is what they're really like. And the result was that both Israel and their God became laughing stocks. God's glory was dragged through the mud and his people's reputation was given a black eye. Do you know that's the only place in Scripture where God's people are said to have become a laughingstock? Where God is said to have become a laughingstock to those outside the congregation of faith? But unfortunately, it was not the last time the people of God became a laughingstock. In our own day, in our own country, our own greater Chicago area, we've experienced some similar phenomena. The people of God, the church, becoming to many a laughing stock, many of those on the outside, who don't even know what we're about. In the past few years, the press has had a field day reporting on the foolish and immoral practices of one pastor or another, one elder or another, one local congregation or another, and you know there's absolutely no need for me to recite the list of fallen churches and fallen leaders. It would serve no purpose. We've all heard the stories. We've all winced. And occasionally, I, I hope, you've even shed a tear over what's happened. And over the lost glory that should have been lifted to God. The church has unfortunately become for many a laughing stock. And Christ has been denied the glory and the praise do him. All this in spite of the fact that ours is the only message that can save. The only real hope for a broken and a hostile world. But the noise coming from many of our churches has drowned out the sound of the gospel, the message of Jesus Christ. And, and I want to say this morning, it's not just the immorality in the church that has robbed Christ of the glory and honor due him. It's also our failure to stay true to our message, to stay by our theme. Far too many of our churches have forsaken the good news of the gospel for a gospel of political correctness, political parties, a gospel of health and wealth, a gospel of grace without holiness. A gospel of activism or escapism. A gospel of hatred for our enemies. And the result is that the noise coming from the church at the beginning of the 21st century has left many people in the world around us confused about who this Jesus is. Confused about what the gospel is. Confused about what we mean when we sing about amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. We need a better way. (laughs) We need a better sound. We need a better way to communicate the noise, the message, the gospel of Jesus Christ to our age in a way that draws them. Some 30 years ago, Sherry and I were sitting at the airport in Wichita, Kansas. We had just completed sessions for our annual Free Church Conference. And... um, we were waiting on a plane and as we sat there at the gate, there was a noise, a, a kind of a a growing hubbub in the background, and then laughter and then and then applause and off and on. And I said to Sherry, I don't know what that is, I'm gonna go and find out. Wait here. And I started down the corridor. I came eventually to a gate where about fifty people were sitting waiting for a flight. At first, I didn't recognize them, and I wasn't even sure what they were doing. But around them now, by this time, there were several hundred passengers who were making their way to their gate, but were enthralled with what was going on here, and had stopped to listen in. I wondered, who were these people? And so as I listened, I, I realized, I began to recognize some of their faces. These were people from our Hershey Pennsylvania choir they had flown as a group 50 plus to be at the conference and to sing for our conference and now here they were about to return home aboard this plane and they were waiting on the flight and as they waited they were simply enjoying themselves in the Lord and they were having a great time and they were telling stories of God's goodness and they were worshiping and they were, they were celebrating birthdays. And, and occasionally they'd stop and just pray for one member or another who was struggling with some issue. And here was a group of people who probably had never experienced anything like this. Somehow drawn to what was going on. The joy. The conviction. The sense of someone bigger than themselves in their midst. And the crowd continued to grow. I think back on that often and I think... This, perhaps more than any other picture in my mind, communicates the way the sound of the gospel ought to go out. Not always as preaching, as we do on Sunday mornings. Not always as the reading of scripture. But on our everyday lives, as we communicate with one another the goodness of our God, and as we share with whoever will listen his mercies, his goodness, the joy that comes to those who live and experience life with Jesus Christ. I'm convinced that if the church today were to step back and say, what one thing can we do? It would be this. What one thing can we do to make sure that the sound that's going out from the churches is more attractive, more winsome, more true to the gospel? It would be simply to consider how we communicate the good news in our day-to-day lives. How we speak. How we talk. What we do when we go on our blog uh huh. Some of us forget that's a means of communication. It makes lots of noise. Sad to say, uh, about an occasion or two when someone has come to me and said, Well, you know, I know what you evangelicals are about. I didn't understand it. I get it now because I read the blog of some evangelical in Toluca Luca, wherever, 900, 1,000 miles away, and he explained to me what you evangelicals are all about and what you hate and what you're against and what you don't like. And I I get it. I know what you're all about now. And I think to myself, I wonder if that brother or sister in Christ who wrote that blog ever stopped to think that message was reflecting on Jesus Christ and his church and the people of God. I wonder sometimes if the words I speak when I'm irritated, when I'm not sensitive, when I'm not listening, following the leading of the Spirit. I wonder if I stop to think that those words communicate something about my Savior and my Lord. What's the noise coming out of this camp, this life, your life, our families, our homes, in the workplace? What's the message that we're sending? Is it good news? Is it news of a Savior? Is it news of one who offers hope to a world that seems to be without hope? We're surrounded by people. We are people sometimes who are losing our sense of hope, losing our sense of destiny. And yet, who, if not the church, has a right to say, there is a good God who is still sovereign, still in control, and he will accomplish his good purpose. Is the message going out? Are we sending it with our lips and our words and our computers and our communications in small group and in interactions on the job Are we? Pray with me, will you? Spirit of God, it's so easy for us to become careless with our words, careless with the message that we send out with our lives. What will the world think of our Jesus? What will the world think of the church? What will the world think of the gospel if they listen closely to our lives? Oh, May Jesus be lifted up. May the gospel be glorious. May the joy of this life in Christ be real and profound and tangible so that the world can see it and hear it and say, I want that too. What is that you have? What's that about? May we be ready to tell them the answer is Jesus, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. Amen.